Welcome to the Addison Gallery of American Art. I'm Tamara Vishai, host of the art history podcast, The Lonely Palette. And throughout this three-episode series, Your Guide to the Addison, as we celebrate its 90th anniversary by looking at some of the most important and provocative objects in the museum's collection. Join me on a thematic stroll through the galleries as we poke and probe both what these objects mean to art history and to each other. Today, exploring the figure. In my art, the Moroccan photographer Lala Asaidi writes, I wish to present myself through multiple lenses. In short, I wish to resist stereotypes. You've probably seen her work before. She photographs female figures with their bodies covered in henna, a dye that temporarily pigments the skin, which is commonly used in ornate decorative patterning for celebratory events in India, the Middle East, and Northern Africa. The henna here is spelling out intricate, loosely rendered Arabic text, which then extends from the body to the rest of the image, acting like a transparent screen between the figure and us. And this use of text as a kind of decorative veil is particularly resonant in one of her most famous images, La Femme de Maroc, Le Grand Odalisque from 2008, where she adopts the same pose and coquettish audience-facing glance as its namesake, the famous Orientalist painting, Le Grand Odalisque, by Jean-Auguste Dominique Angre, which you've also probably seen before. And you've probably also heard of Orientalism before, but even so, here's a quick refresher. In the context of art history, Orientalism refers to a period in the 19th century of Western fetishization of non-Western, and particularly Middle Eastern and Northern African imagery and symbolism, in what can only be described as a pretty essentializing and paternalistic way. And it resulted in, for our purposes, two key things. Utterly gorgeous paintings, and the flattening, and yes, stereotyping, of entire cultures. You've also probably heard of this before. There's an awful lot of it in art history. Plenty of perspectives have been elevated over others. Plenty of narratives have been inadvertently flattened. And little by little, we're seeing artists like Lala Asadi address this. While the exploration of Orientalism and how problematic we all recognize it to be hasn't done anything to lessen the value of an Ankara painting, it certainly helped to reframe it. And it's evolved the way that we, as an audience, process the art we see hanging on museum walls. Because there's a lot that goes into experiencing any painting. There are multiple lenses. Any single artwork is gonna resonate with and be interpreted by an artist and any number of larger societal contexts and individual perspectives, experiences, and identities. Asaidi, just as an example, is a woman, a Muslim, a photographer, a scholar of art history. And because of this, her photograph isn't static. It feels like an evolution. And with multiple lenses, inevitably come contradictions. For example, she presents an Islamic woman both veiled and revealed by Arabic text. She's not covered with verses from the Quran. These are words from Asaidi's own journal, musings on personal freedom and identity. 
Meanwhile, she is at once referencing, respecting, and rejecting the version of herself as depicted by an Orientalist French painter. Quote, ultimately, she writes, I wish for my work to be as vividly present and yet as elusive as woman herself, not simply because she is veiled or turns away, but because she is still in progress, end quote. This is a lucid, important statement about the figure in art. Because it is so often in progress. Not because the art itself changes, but because we do. We, the audience. Angre might stand still, locked in an ornate 19th century frame, but his figures are open to the responses of anyone who sees them. And sometimes, as we see with Asaidi, that interpretation can itself be turned into art. And perhaps this kind of response, this staying in progress, is how we can truly resist stereotypes. In this episode, we're going to look at the figure in photographs and the myriad ways that artists have used bodies, and often their own, to probe stereotypes and to present these multiple lenses. We're going to explore the idea, which is so ubiquitous it's practically a cliche, that art history has been created by a Western male gaze. And we're going to explore what it means for the object of that gaze, and especially when that object takes the gaze back for themselves. I'm not gonna lie, we're gonna be looking at a lot of photographers and mostly women. Laurie Simmons, Cindy Sherman, Lorna Simpson, Sally Mann, and Dawood Bey. Like Lala Asaidi, they're altogether artists who have grabbed the handlebars of narrative, of stereotypes, and of multiple lenses full force, and are showing their audiences what this newfound control means to them. So let's start with Lori Simmons. Simmons is an artist who, in her own words, is less a photographer than an artist who uses photography. She is a core member of the Pictures Generation, a group of artists from the 1970s, lumped together by critics, as they so often are, because of their use of photography as a means of pushing the boundaries of conceptual and postmodern art, rather than, you could say, the medium of photography itself. And it's true, her work is less about refined photographic technique than the exploration of how to exploit a medium that we're predisposed to trust and allow it to lie to us. After all, photographs appear to document reality, and quote, I was excited, she said, by the idea that a photograph could lie, end quote. And this photograph, Woman Kitchen Sitting on Sink from 1976, which is both early from and formative of her career, is a prime example of the power of intentional artifice, both in its technique and in its content. And the content is a doll, playfully and unsettlingly arranged in a dollhouse scene, and is a classic example of her early style. In her retelling, Simmons was a young art school graduate in the early 1970s looking for freelance commercial photography work, and in order to get a job working for a toy company catalog, she began photographing dollhouse furniture. The job never panned out, but she was smitten with the artistic possibilities. And here we see a classic 1950s housewife sitting on a sink 
engaged in the performance of her domestic duties. But the authenticity of the scene can't help be questioned, given how artificial it all is. It is a doll, after all. It's beautiful and perfect in the way that anything poured into a mold can be perfect. This isn't even a kitchen, it's a playset. It's pure simulation. It's not a photograph that's documenting reality. It's the playful exploration of a medium that is participating in the artifice. And this figure, the stereotype of elegant 1950s femininity, like the character of June Cleaver, is both venerated and subverted. The artificiality of it highlights how damaging this kind of fiction could be to the women conscripted into making it real. As Simmons wrote, quote, I was simply trying to recreate a feeling, a mood, a sense of the 1950s that I knew was both beautiful and lethal at the same time, end quote. The prescribed role is unveiled as a playful, pristine, and dangerous fantasy. And this fantasy, or at least this fiction, is also seen in the work of Cindy Sherman. Sherman was a fellow member of the loosely gathered pictures generation, and a good friend of Simmons, and is known almost exclusively for role-playing in her work. She is almost always her own subject, but the images are never self-portraits. Instead, she creates personas. She dresses up in various costumes, wigs, prosthetics, and disappears into these transformations so seamlessly that you'd be forgiven for not really being able to recall what Cindy Sherman actually looks like. Here, for example, we have the actress Daydreaming from her series Murder Mystery People, which began in 1976, a forerunner to her untitled film stills, which are credited for putting her on the map. It was a project that she created while still a college student, where she meticulously staged stock characters from classic Hollywood movies. Here, we see an actress in a 1940s bathing suit vamping at the camera. But there is no movie. Her character exists as though on a trading card, with all the narrative implied but unrealized. And Sherman even holds in her hand the cable release cord to take the photo, again removing this character from her prescribed role and pushing her into our space. But for what purpose? What is the point of creating this actress, or a detective, or, in her untitled film stills, a character caught in a frame from a movie that never existed? In a way, it calls to mind the isolated comic book frames of Roy Lichtenstein. The idea that a pop culture frame in isolation, if properly chosen, can be representative of everything that comes before and after that frame, and that we, as the audience, can actually fill in all of that on our own. And it begs the question, particularly with Sherman's characters, about how we're going to do that. What narrative journeys have her women been on? Where are they going? And how have we been shaped by larger societal forces to consider ourselves empowered with the ability to tell their stories? Like with Simmons' dolls, there's a remarkable amount of truth about ourselves that can be gleaned from this fictional tableau. 
And this idea that we fill in sparsely provided stories ourselves brings us to Lorna Simpson. While Simmons and Sherman used photography as an avant-garde artistic medium, Simpson was actually trained as a documentary photographer and brings that gimlet eye to her own exploration of how conceptual the photographic medium can be. And this is reinforced by the way, like Lala Asaidi, she embeds her images with text. And the images themselves are largely serene, elegant, non-confrontational images of black figures. Unseen faces, cropped bodies, collarbones, necks, shoulders, delicately wrinkled white garments, like we see here in screen four from 1986. The text, though simple and declarative, is also ambiguous. Quote, she was no more exotic than the sparse room she posed in, end quote. And this ambiguity is intentional because it requires more from us. We're absorbed by these fragmented pieces of people and recognize how much of the narrative we unconsciously piece together. And this is how Simpson plays with multiple lenses, with narratives, and particularly with the stereotypes of black women. We don't actually know this person's story. We're only experiencing her objectified fragments. And this taps into chilling historical precedent when we consider the way that black bodies have been dehumanized, reduced to their parts, even auctioned off. But Simpson invites multiple readings as well. Again, like Asaidi, she embraces contradictions. The simplicity of her work can also lend itself to our appreciation of the beauty of the subject itself when removed from its context. The curve of a beautiful shoulder, the elegant geometry of a collarbone. We admire and we fetishize. We steer the narrative and, like with both Sherman and Simmons, become aware of this steering, the way we've allowed this narrative to be shaped, our role in it, and how perhaps an artist calling our attention to this is the only way to resist it. And so there's a tremendous power to this work's simplicity. It's amazing when you engage your viewer how much can be said with so little. Onward to Sally Mann. Again, here we have another photographer without formal photo documentary training, capturing female bodies who are themselves playing with roles, trying on stereotypes, and feeling how they fit. Mann hit the scene with an emphasis in her work on motherhood, creating beautiful, liberated images of her children, and particularly her daughters, as they teetered on the edge of their own girlhoods probing womanhood with their toes. Man manages to both capture the innocence of childhood and subvert it, pointing out the way that innocence itself is a fiction and touching on the moments of anxiety, insecurity, and bravado that come hand in hand with adolescence. In The New Mothers from 1989, we see girls confronting the camera, prickling with attitude. One stands in a brazen contrapposto, resting a hand on the stroller that holds her doll. The other, younger, parroting her sister, 
protectively holds her doll with her other hand on her hip, vamping, again, over her sunglasses, borrowing from Cindy Sherman's starlet. The image is both adorable and weirdly unsettling. The role of mother is clearly pure artifice to them, yet the authenticity of these girls caught so vulnerably in their prepubescence is almost startling to behold. This photograph, taken by their own mother, is a striking account of the way little girls imagine and process the idea of motherhood, contrasting their instinctual nurturing, they do take care of their dolls after all, with their artificial play-acting. This is what it is to be a mother. It's as though man is aware, in her maternal wisdom, that the fun you have playing with stereotypes when you're young only makes it even more fun to smash them as you get older. And these ideas, our complicated relationship with stereotypes, the plurality of perspectives, and the subversion of the gaze, bring us to our final photographer, Dawood Bey. Bey was gifted a camera at the age of 14 by his godfather and immediately took to the streets, pouring himself into what is now called street photography, a style of documentary that captures the unvarnished compositions of life being lived, those deliberate, specific details that speak for a larger whole. And it was important to Bay to turn his camera on lives that are historically underrepresented in the art world, and certainly in art history, where black figures, if represented at all, have almost exclusively been relegated to the background, or representative of a flattened trope. When Bay moved from the street into the studio and began taking large-format single-subject portraits, like this one from 1992, of a performer and composer named Alva Rogers, he brought with him into the studio not only this exquisite eye for details that speak volumes, but a desire to capture this woman in all the human complexity that had so long been denied of black subjects in art. Where Simpson deliberately withholds identity in favor of an audience-guided narrative, Bay revels in the specificity of this woman, shown in a diptych, one looking away, inward, private, the other making eye contact, direct, confident, and welcoming. Both images are consumed by her billowing black hair and the photographic precision of her features, revealing the incredible attention to detail required to make a snapshot of a woman in progress feel so spontaneous. Alva is a black woman, beautifully representative of her multiple immutable identities, and also more than their sum. To resist stereotypes is to resist being cast into a narrative that flattens, either by means of dehumanization or veneration. This woman is no less or more than she's always been. Her dimensionality is a product of her details, some of which Bay is uniquely capable of capturing, and so many others that she keeps to herself. And who among us would choose to see ourselves any differently than that? It's a funny thing, the gaze, as though it can ever be objective, as though it's ever possessed by someone who isn't themselves captured by their own human insecurities, by the way they've been shaped by the world, as though it can ever fully capture the subject in its sights. 
And it's funny too, the idea that someone who holds a camera somehow holds an arbiter of truth, of accuracy, when it's also just an easily manipulated tool, as vulnerable to subjectivity as the artist who operates it. And in this way, it's a fundamental necessity for art history to take a look at these photographers and countless others and appreciate how deftly, subtly, overtly they're calling out this idea of a singular and omniscient gaze and how much humanity and depth they're injecting into a discourse, a discourse that is and will always mercifully be in progress. A great big thank you to the Addison staff, present and past. You can find these episodes as they're being released, beginning in May 2021 on the Lonely Palette feed and at the Addison Gallery of American Arts website, where you can also see all of the images and find more information about Learning to Look, the Addison at 90, which runs through fall 2021. You can also listen to The Lonely Palette at www.thelonelypalette.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.